Uh, if you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, I hope you do. I want to invite you to open with me to Luke in chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 22 through 40 in our time together this morning. 22 through 40 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke uh, into the new year. And so um, our journey through Luke started with Advent, kind of lined up with all that. Um, and we've told you that we're going to keep going through it. So we'll be in Luke um, for the rest of this year, uh, taking our intermittent breaks for things like Easter and Summer and Psalms, but for the most part, we'll be traveling through this gospel. So today, uh, we're going to continue in 22 through 40. Uh, if you got it, say, I got it. It'll also be behind me on the screen for you to follow in my translation as well. Let's go ahead and read this together. God's Word says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of, of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write his eternal truths on all of our hearts. Well, today, of course, is the second day of January, which means people should be at the beginning stage of making or keeping their annual New Year's resolutions. Out of curiosity, how many of you have made resolutions this year? Wow. So of the two who raised their hand, how many of you have broken them already? Anybody? Typically, the most popular resolutions are, I don't know if it's good or bad <laughs> that nobody is making resolutions, but the most popular resolutions are to, you can probably guess, improve fitness, lose weight, save money, improve diet, things like this, all of which are commendable goals, yes? According to surveys, anywhere from 30 to 50% of people say they have made resolutions for the new year, 80% give up by Valentine's Day. And about 8% actually keep them by the end of the year. And some even forget they made resolutions by June. I think making resolutions is a good, right? Well-intentioned 
mostly well-intentioned. Typically, what people endeavor to accomplish are good things. After all, who would not commend someone attempting to eat better, (laughs) exercise more, right? Uh, But these resolutions oftentimes have self-improvement as their focus. They all have to do with making ourselves better, and the reasons we want to become better can be numerous. Do we ever examine why we want to eat better or exercise more? Do we examine why we want to improve in these ways specifically? And, and how do resolutions fit into the Christian life? If they do, what should we be resolving to do? I want you to listen to David Powson on this. He said, for starters, what is a resolution? What does it mean for me to resolve something? This use of the word resolution means coming to a firm and determined decision to do something, to behave in a certain manner, to abide by a certain principle. That sounds, he says, decidedly Christian. Consider, considered from this angle, the Nicene Creed is one sort of resolution. And I am your servant, I promise to keep your words from Psalm 119 is another example of resolve. When you resolve blank, it means you formally express what you believe, will, or intend. It is a stand to take, a direction you choose. After thought and decision, you commit yourself to take steps along a trajectory which changes the destination of your life. Put that way, the entire Christian life might be conceived as a lifelong determination to walk, make and walk out new creation everyday resolutions. He then says, let me give you a specific example. In 1976, newly converted to Jesus Christ, I joined a church. I did so by making a resolution in front of an entire congregation of like-minded people. These were the words. I now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that I will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ. That resolution was not cooked up on some hungover January 1st because I'd become dissatisfied with my life over the previous 12 months. It's a resolution expressing the mind of Christ, mapping out a new life through all my days and years. Then he says this, So are you making your New Year's resolutions? On this New Year's Eve, I've decided to make one for the first time in my life, and I'm making it public, and this is what it was. I now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, that I will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ. This is, in essence, what I want us to do in our time together this morning. Resolutions are good, but there are some I'd suggest are even better than the ones we typically make around this time of year. So from this text in Luke 2, I want to challenge you. Better, the Word wants to challenge us to three resolutions from this, for this coming year and indeed for the rest of our lives, okay? Three of them, point number one or resolution number one. Resolve to choose a side. Resolve to choose a side. Does that sound ominous? It should, because we see this in part in what Simeon is saying, okay? What is this scene? Well, we're told that in obedience to the law of Moses, and you notice that repeatedly mentioned, right? Mary and Joseph go to the temple with Jesus, and Mary must offer a sacrifice and follow the purification rituals, that follow giving birth. Now the law calls for a lamb to be given as a burnt offering and a turtle dove as a sin offering. But what does Luke tell us she offered in verse 24? A pair of turtle doves. Because the law allowed for those who were too poor to buy a lamb to offer those inexpensive birds instead. Okay, What's this point us to? 
Jesus comes from poverty. Once again, we are pointed to Jesus comes from poverty. His earthly parents were too poor to buy a lamb. Jesus comes from poverty because he comes for the poor. There is no pretense with the God of all creation. So they offer Jesus to God, just as the law called them to do with the firstborn son. Yet they do not know just what the extent that truly is when it comes to Jesus as their marveling and confusion in verse 33 and 44 through 52 evidences. Now there were, we were told this man Simeon <coughs> was religious, righteous, and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel who had been promised by God that he would not die before he sees God's Christ. And he comes up to Mary and Joseph, and he takes baby Jesus into his arms, and he begins to prophesy by the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus. Now, we'll talk about the song in 29 through 32 in our next point. But for this point, I want you to consider what he says directly to Mary, okay, in 34 through 35. He, he sings this song, he talks about the hope of Christ and his global salvation, right? And he looks at Mary and he says this, look again, 34 or 35. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, you see why this first point sounds so ominous, right? <laughs> Simeon says that this baby will eventually grow up and he will be the salvation for some, but the judge for others. He will be the rising of some and what? The fall of others. Perhaps Simeon is drawing off Isaiah, where it says in chapter 8 of Isaiah that Messiah will be a stone, which some will stumble over and they will fall and be broken. And then in chapter 28, it says that he will be a precious cornerstone and a source of comfort for those who trust in him. That is Jesus. He brings with him not only salvation, but division. Simeon knows that although Jesus is God's hope, not everyone will respond positively to him. And you know this as well, yes? Just consider what you know about Jesus' life and ministry. Is that not exactly what happened? When people encountered Jesus, they either wanted to worship and follow him, or they wanted to kill him or reject him. People do not respond neutrally to Jesus. And Jesus himself did not give them that option. Simeon is saying that Jesus coming into the world means that the world will be divided into two distinct groups. Those who submit to him as God's Messiah, and those who do not. Simeon is telling us something we should already know, right? In this life, you either choose to crown Jesus or kill him. There's no middle choice. Jesus is either your Lord or he is nothing to you. The mushy middle of nominal Christianity is a modern invention, not a biblical option. There is no halfway with Jesus, you understand. C.S. Lewis talked about this often and at length. He said that we must begin with three facts, okay? Number one, you are here and now. Number two, God is here and now. Number three, God demands all of you. And these three facts yield a fourth. Every moment of every day, you are confronted with a choice. 
either place God at the center of your life or place something else there. And said Lewis, it doesn't even matter what you put there. If, if the choice you make isn't to submit to Christ, then the other choices fit into the category of having rejected him, and they all lead to the same place. Says Lewis, if you have not chosen the kingdom of God, it will make, in the end, no difference what you have chosen instead. These are hard words to take. Will it really make no difference whether it is women or patriotism, cocaine or art, whiskey or a seat in cabinet, money or science? Well, surely no difference that matters. We shall have missed the end for which we are formed and rejected the only thing that satisfies. We are constantly confronted every day and every moment with a forked road. And choosing the way of Christ is the only one that leads to life. That's the big choice, yes? Yes? <laughs> to follow Christ or follow self. To submit to Christ or submit to self-will. To give God the glory or to glorify self. To release hold of our lives and be ruled by Christ or insist on our own rule. And from these big choices will come how we respond to the little ones that we are confronted with hour by hour and day by day and month by month and year by year. Is Christ king and savior to you or is he nothing? That's what Simeon is saying. <clears throat> He's saying people will either accept his gracious offer of salvation or he will be the stone that they trip over on their way to self-willed destruction. Did you notice the language that Luke and Simeon use? Luke says Simeon was waiting for the one consolation of Israel and that he wouldn't see death before he saw the Lord's one Messiah. And when Simeon lifted up the incarnate Christ, the consolation of Israel embodied, he said, my eyes have seen your salvation. What is God's salvation? It isn't a what. God's salvation is a person called Jesus. He is the embodiment of of salvation, which means what? It means we need salvation, yes? Provided to us, and there is salvation available, but it's only found in one place, and that is Christ. You simply cannot and will not find it anywhere else. That, that's why Lewis said it didn't matter what else you chose because they all lead to damnation. Salvation is only found here in this person, and every other choice beside him is really the same choice. What matters is, will you crown Jesus, or will you kill him? Some want to live with Jesus on the fringes. Some give verbal assent to Jesus and claim to know him, but then live their lives, and Jesus has absolutely nothing to do with it. He isn't factored in at all. He is accepted as their Savior, but never as Lord. He is a means to heaven after death and not much more. He is rarely thought of, never obeyed, or enjoyed. And I'm not talking about perfect obedience here, okay? I'm talking about saying to know Jesus. And even saying one loves him, but there is absolutely no striving to know him more or obey his commands. That's not true following, is it? That, that half-hearted devotion is not something Jesus designed, that build-a-bear Christianity that really is just secular relativism dressed up in spiritual language is something invented, not something you will find in the pages of Scripture. Jesus divides because he says, follow me or don't. Find life in me or be a walking corpse. 
Find bread in me or go hungry. I'll be your shepherd or you'll go about wondering where there's no life. That's grace because the offer is there. And the offer is free. But some don't want it. As Tim Keller said, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing, but that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. All you need is need, but some people don't have it. But those who don't get it, don't get it because Jesus' offer is still too costly. This is why he's come to divide, because he doesn't accept anything less than our submission to him as king and savior. To say, I'll give you half devotion, or I will take your stuff but not you, is really saying, I don't want you at all. Submission, however, I hope you agree with me, is what makes sense, yes, to Jesus? If you have a king like this, who is creator God, who came into human flesh and was a vulnerable baby in a poor family, who lived a life of rejected, rejection, died in your place by sheer grace and mercy and love, and was resurrected so that you can do the same at the end of the age. If you really see him as all of that, and you really see that he did that for you, I mean, does half devotion a marginal Christianity, taking or leaving obedience to him, living as if he has no effect on your life? Does any of that make any sense in light of who he is? The one who's controlling and can count every raindrop that's falling right now. And we say, I'll give you half devotion. Does that make any sense at all? Think about this, okay? Imagine if your fiance told you, like, you're getting married and you're exchanging vows, okay? And they say, I will love you 50% of the time. I will give you 50% of devotion, 50% of loyalty. I will be faithful to you 50% of the time. I will live at the house whenever I feel like it or need something, and I'll parent when I'm in the mood, and let's keep our bank accounts separate, and on and on. What would you say to that? Oh, that makes perfect sense. Let's, get it. let's do this, right? Would you say that? No, you'd be like, nothing about what you just said can be called marriage, right? Another one you just said could be called being married. And if, if you'd say the same thing, if they told you at the beginning that they'd be exclusively yours, but then said later that they changed their mind and they would be half invested. And, and you wouldn't go for that because half devotion from your spouse is not only a contradiction in terms, it's an insult. Who would stand for half faithfulness from a husband or a wife? So why do we imagine that Jesus, the king of all things, redeemer, savior, holder of eternity, atoning sacrifice, God's salvation embodied, would call us to obedienceless, half-devotion where he is on the fringes of our lives? If your spouse said, I'm going to be 70% faithful, and you should be happy with that because it's more than 50, that would be ludicrous. And yet, how many give Jesus even less and act as if he should be happy that he gets that much, as if he needs anything anyway? Simeon says Jesus divides, and this is why. Because you either come to him or you don't. <laughs> right? And <laughs> if you do, he's calling for your everything. And that's too much for many to handle. There's a reason Jesus will later say, that the road to destruction is wide and luxurious, right? 
with lots of room for bags full of idols, <laughs> while the road to life is narrow and bumpy and winding, but that's okay, he says, because he accompanies you along the way, the same way that he traversed himself. And like we said last week, a choice just it has to be made. It's going to be made. In Simeon's language, either you trip over Jesus or he's your cornerstone. You crown him or you kill him. You live for him in his kingdom or you live for you and yours. And understand that this choice is not simply a one-time choice you make at conversion. You choose Christ at conversion. You respond to the Spirit's conviction. You repent. You pledge your allegiance to Jesus. From that point on, you continually choose him. Because every single day of your life, you will be confronted with the options, you know this, of Christ or world, sin or obedience, God's way or your way. Are you not confronted with this choice every day? You know you are. <coughs> Even if we don't think in those terms. God's will or yours, God's glory or yours, following Jesus is a life posture that takes intentionality. And you won't bat a thousand Right? And you'll make the wrong choices like I make the wrong choices. But the more you draw from Christ, the more you lean on him. And the more you learn of his will in his word, the more you are intentional to obey, the more you will go through life making the right choices. And not because you feel you have to, but because you want to, because the more you get of Christ, the more you'll want and the more you see his beauty, the less you'll be allured by the fading beauty of the things of earth. One of my favorite quotes, John Owen said, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ, herein would I live, herein would I die, herein would I dwell on my thoughts and my affections until all things here below become as dead and deformed things and in no longer any way call for my affection. That should be our prayer and our intentions. So this year, as you're forced to make a choice between Jesus and anything else, Resolve to choose Jesus and start today. Even if you're here and you're a Christian and you made the initial choice in the past, say again today, this year I resolve to choose Christ and choose Christ and choose Christ. But point number two, resolve to hope in Christ. Resolve to hope in Christ. Simeon's hope, I think it's fair to say, rested in Christ. Yes. In verse 25, we're told that he was awaiting the consolation of Israel and that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death until he laid eyes on the Lord's Christ. Now, we might can picture, as I like picturing, Simeon arising every morning. Can you picture it? And him going to the temple and watching people come and go. And every time he saw like a mom and dad with a baby, maybe wondering, is he it? Is he Israel's consolation? Is he God's salvation? And the Spirit telling Simeon day after day, it's not him. And maybe this went on for years. And, and, but he kept going and he kept hoping and he kept believing in God's promise to him in Israel, never doubting they would go, come to fruition. Then one day, by God's providence, Simeon is at the temple and a young couple walks through with a not-quite-two-month-old baby boy, and Simeon asks for the thousandth time, is that him? Is he God's salvation? And the Spirit finally says, that's him. And so Simeon rushes over. Can you imagine? Rushes over, and he takes the incarnate Christ into his arms, and he bursts into this song. Like, what would you do if you had a newborn baby and this 
fella just ran up and grabbed your baby and started singing a song about him, right? This is what he does. God had done exactly what he said he'd do, and Simeon is overjoyed. Simeon put his trust fully in God, and all of his hopes rested in Christ and God's promises. Is that not the content of this song? He says in 29 that now the Lord is letting his servant depart in peace. All he has been waiting for has been Christ. And now that he has had the high honor of seeing him with his own eyes, he says, I'm content. Simeon's hopes rests fully on Christ, and he knew that salvation was something only God could accomplish, and that it could only be found in the Lord's Messiah. Did you notice all the language that Simeon uses that emphasizes this as God's work? Look again. <coughs> Let me take you through this. If you, somebody writes in your Bible or scripture journals, I encourage you to emphasize this. You look at verse 29. He says, Lord, now what? You are letting your servant depart in peace. God is letting Simeon depart in peace according to your word. God made the promise. God kept his word. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen what? Your salvation. God is the provider of salvation. It's salvation from him, through him, by him, imparted on the undeserving. Verse 31, that you have prepared the triune God in eternity past decided the second person of the Trinity would come and become incarnate to save the world and reverse the curse. God prepared salvation. The salvation embodied by Jesus is, verse 32, a light from the outside of the world that shines on the Gentiles in their darkness and is for glory to God's people. He's the possessor who would positively respond to God's Messiah. Even when you turn your attention, like we did before, to Mary in 34 and 35, the work is still all of God. This child was appointed, right, for the fall and rise of many. It is he who will have a ministry that divides so that the hearts of people will be laid bare. Do you see? All of Simeon's hope rests in what God would do as his champion and savior and king. His hopes are on the firmest foundations that exist. Who else keeps their word like God does? Can you tell me? No one. Who else provides real salvation to the drowning and sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and food for the hungry? Who loves to such an extent that they would seek and find and die for their enemy. Only this God. And only this Christ. And so who else can bear the weight of our hopes? No one and nothing. Friend, can I ask, where is your hope residing right now? Truly. If you look at your life, what would you say you are hoping for and hoping in? Where do you locate your life's meaning? What, what do you look at and say, if I had that, I would be happy? Or because I have that, I am happy? Why don't you consider again the most popular New Year's resolutions? Eat better, lose weight, get in better shape, exercise more. All these are good things to aspire to, yes? I think we can agree on that. 
Who would say those are bad things to pursue, right? But what we must ask of all that we do is, where is my motivation for this? Why am I doing this? If you're trying to get into better shape because you want other people to look like the way you look, or to post pics on Instagram or Facebook to get them likes and comments for them dopamine hits, you are putting your hope in other people. Yes? And what they think of you. Your hope thus rests on the thoughts of other fallen people. Good goal plus bad motivation equals misplaced hope. If you want to make more money or take more vacations or get a promotion or things like this, that's commendable, but why? We must not assume all of our motivations are pure simply because they're our motivations, right? Why are you pursuing these things? What do you think they will give you that will finally make you feel secure? Because if more money or things or leisure is where we think we will find hope and security, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment because we will always want and need more. <clears throat> you know, the late David Foster Wallace, he on this profoundly in a commencement address at Kenyon College called This is Water. Okay? And Wallace, who best we know was not a Christian, was making a point that there's no such thing as atheism. He says, everyone worships. The only thing we get to choose is what, right? We worship. And he said the compelling reason to worship God or be religious at all is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He said, if you worship money and possessions, then you'll never have enough and never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Over and over again, his point is that if you locate our hope in these things that the world tells us we should, we won't find hope, we won't find freedom, we won't find happiness or joy. Instead, we'll find flimsy foundations that we constantly have to replace with the same material rather than doing a complete overhaul and taking out the flimsy stuff and replacing it with the cornerstone that's Christ. What will bear your weight? What, what can be your only hope that will never let you down? Because not only will everything but Christ not be able to be our hope and rest day to day, they won't be there for us when things get hard. You know this? We go through the inevitable trials of life we are hated for the gospel's sake because we chose the side of Christ when family or friend or neighbor or co-workers choose the other side. Because look, not only is the idea that Jesus will be the rise and fall of many because people will be faced with choice to crown him or kill him, but Simeon is telling us that those who choose Christ must fall before they rise. In other words, choosing him is choosing the hard path. Simeon is likely drawn from Micah 7.9, which says, Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is light for me. So what is Simeon saying? He's saying that suffering will precede glory for Jesus' disciples. Those who belong to Jesus will be vindicated ultimately, but not immediately. This is, isn't this the likeness of Christ? This is what happened to him. Jesus suffered and died the worst death in human history, but then he was vindicated through his bodily resurrection. Simeon tells Mary that a sword will pierce her own soul, but why? 
because Jesus' ministry will bring choices that he will make that will be hard for her to bear. <clears throat> Jesus chooses the cross. He chose to enter flesh. He chose to live a life of rejection. He chose to die as a substitute for his enemy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we must remember, Jesus' death is not a mistake. It's not a tragedy. Jesus wasn't a hapless or unwilling victim. It was God's plan before the foundation of the world. God's plan A to rescue the world has been, always was, and always will be through the suffering death of his Messiah. And this will inevitably cause Mary great distress. Of course it would. What mother wouldn't feel the pain of seeing her son scorned and insulted and beaten and executed as an enemy of the state, even though he was innocent and he was slaughtered, but he opened not his mouth like a sheep that was silent before its shearers. But Simeon is saying that if Jesus faced division, if he faced a difficult path, the same could be said for his followers. But like Jesus, they will be vindicated in the end. The Christian life is a hard one. Do you know this? And it was meant to be. Uh, Jesus was never shy about that, was he? I mean, if, you, if you're representing the interests of a kingdom that is not of this world, and you're supposed to take up your cross, and you're supposed to deny yourself, and you're supposed to put others before yourself and not advocate for your own interests or rights, and you're supposed to forgive seven times 70, and you're supposed to obey commands that you would, quite frankly, rather not, then of course your life will be hard, right? And that's why so many reject Jesus outright or, or claim to know him, but evidence that they don't by the way they live and should grin the hard path of discipleship. But we must see that when the storms of life come our way, that Christ alone is sufficient to be our hope. Many of you know this by experience to be the case, don't you? You faced the trials and the hardships of life and the incredible pains. And so many of you have been that witness that you ran to Christ. Yes? When hardship came and you never forsook him even as he never forsook you. And what else can we hope in that will be our comfort and rock in the storms like him? Can we dry our tears with our $20 or $100 bills? Will our hobbies give us comfort? But will the man sitting alone in all that square footage feel a joy that surpasses understanding when his ambitions drove every person away from his life? Will politicians who don't know our name and who constantly break promises comfort us? Will likes and comments on social media hold our weight when we are depressed or confused? Will the applause and approval of people be our steady anchor and guide when life hurts beyond understanding? You know, when Charles Spurgeon preached this text back in the 19th century, he said this. Let me tell you of martyrs who clapped their hands in the flames, and while their limbs were burning at the stake, could yet sing a carol as if it were Christmas Day in their hearts, though it was ash day to their bodies. He said, come here, unbeliever, and let me show you Christians in ordinary life, not martyrs, not confessors, not men with blood-red crowns on their brows, but common men like yourself. See that husband? He has just returned from the funeral of his wife. Do you mark his countenance? 
He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Could you do that? See you, yonder merchant. Ruin has overtaken him. He has reduced to poverty. Mark how he lifts his hands to heaven and cries, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flocks be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herds in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in God of my salvation. Could you do the like, unbeliever, he asked him. Nay, you cannot, but there is consolation in Christ. Simeon had this hope because he knew it was the only place to find true and lasting hope that gave true peace and true joy. Because even though Simeon said some ominous things, yes, with the rising and the falling in Mary's heart, notes of joy never leave the song. Why? You know why. Because his hope was in Christ. And I wonder, friend, is yours? In your heart, in this moment, I want you to ask that question and answer it honestly. There's no, no need to pretense or lying in your own heart, right? <laughs> Maybe you look back to this past week, this past month, this past year, and consider where your time was spent. Where was your zeal located? What got your heart pumping? What, what was made a priority and what choices made when confronted with choosing between Christ and something else? Was your hope in Christ? As you look forward to this year, what are you placing your hopes in? What do you look at and say, if this or that happened, this will be a good year? Do those hopes look like Christ? Knowing him more? Spreading his gospel to those in darkness? Discipling someone? Seeking his will even in the mundane? Friend, see afresh that Christ alone should be your hope and stay. Resolve this year to make Christ your hope because he could handle that weight. And, and when things don't go your way this year, remember this. Even as Simeon was waiting for consolation to come, so do we. That we don't look to the Messiah to come for the first time like he did. We look back at that, of course, but we do look forward because he's coming again. And he's going to make everything right. And he's going to wipe every tear from your cheek. And he's going to make every sad thing come untrue. And he'll vindicate your suffering like the Father vindicated his suffering. And you can trust all of that because the one who promised it is faithful and true. And he always keeps his word. Finally, third. We should resolve to join God's story. Resolve to join God's story. You know, something that's really interesting... <clears throat> in our study of Luke so far, is the wide swath of people we've encountered. Have you noticed that? Surely if you look, no matter who you are, you can find somebody you could identify with. Don't you think? Like we have a religious man in Zechariah. We have a barren woman who has experienced dashed hopes. A teenage girl, a working class man. We've seen the poor and the outcasts and the marginalized. Here we see an elderly man in Simeon near the end of his life. An elderly widow in Anna. We've been taken to the holy city in Jerusalem, to the rule setting of Bethlehem, and the slums of Nazareth, and all along the way we see all kinds of people, and they are all sharing in the joy of Jesus' coming. Normal, ordinary people, with their normal and ordinary obedience, are spotlighted to us by Luke, because he's saying, this is how you respond to the grace of God in Christ. 
Luke is showing us that God has brought salvation in a person named Jesus, and it's available for all people, even you. And with that is an invitation to faithfulness as you join in on what God is doing in the world. I mean, you can contrast this, okay? What does Luke do with all the most powerful men in the world that he's mentioned so far? Herod and Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world, and Quirinius. What does he do with them? The high and the mighty and the powerful. You know what he does? He mentions them, and then he ignores them. Yes? Ignores them. But the poor girl and the working man and the pious man and his wife and the shepherd, this older, and older man and older woman, he zooms in on them and he says, this is how you respond to God's incredible gospel. This is who the gospel is for. This is, think about legacies for a moment. We could talk about our own legacies, right? And we do. We, we could spend time thinking, how will people remember us? What legacy will we leave? What will we leave behind and all that? We can ask, what will people say about me when I die? May I suggest a worth, worthwhile goal? The description Luke gives of Simeon and Anna. Who's Simeon? Well, we don't know much, but we do know that he was a righteous man. Right? He's devout. His hope was in Christ. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And he was full of joy. And he surrendered his life to God for service, and he was content with his life from the Lord. Anna was devout, spending her days at the temple, worshiping and fasting and praying and giving thanks to God and telling people about God, rejoicing in the redemption of Jerusalem through Christ. Those are the things you should want people to say of you. Yes? If that's all that people said of you after you died, would that be enough for you? I mean, I'm just, let's be honest, okay? Nobody is going to give a rip how dope your house is when you die. You know that? Nobody's going to care. At all. Uh, or how many sweet cards you have. Nobody cares. Or, or, or how cool your hobbies were, or how ambitious you were at your job, or, or how fit you were, or how smart you were, or how many people knew your name and respected you. Those aren't bad things, but come on. Okay. We've established that they can't bear the weight of your hopes, so why would you want them to be your legacy? <laughs> you know what people will remember? Your faithfulness. How ferociously you love people without thought of recompense. How you love people unconditionally and never bailed on them. How you're righteous and devout pursuing Christ's command, not because you felt you had to, but because you delighted in Christ's beauty. How you were full of joy even when things were hard. How you served just for the sake of blessing others. How even in retirement you gave yourself to building up younger saints. How you were content with what God gave you because Jesus was all your hope and stay. How you saw the gospel and you saw your need of it and you joined in on God's story and you made his story your story for his glory. Isn't that what you want said of you? That's what I want said of me. You know, N.T. Wright said on this passage, no matter who you are, the story of Jesus from feeding trough in Bethlehem to empty tomb and beyond can become your story. In becoming your story, it will become your vocation. Everybody has their own role in God's plan. For some, it will be active, obvious, working in the public eye, perhaps preaching the gospel or taking the love of God to meet the practical needs of the world. For others, it will be quiet, away from the public view, praying faithfully for God to act in fulfillment of his promises. For many, it will be a mixture of two, sometimes one, sometimes the other. 
Mary and Joseph needed Simeon and Anna at that moment. The old man and old woman needed them and had been waiting for them, and now thank God for them. The births of John the Baptist and Jesus are already beginning their work of drawing people of all sorts into new worship and fellowship. And as you begin this new year, go ahead and make your resolutions, okay? But make these three your top priorities. Resolve to choose Jesus, not just once, but every day. Resolve to rest your hope in Christ. Resolve to join in on God's story and be faithful. And let that be the measure of success, faithfulness, for us as individuals and as a church. Says Daryl Bach, this passage offers a whole perspective on life and contentment. Here are two people near the end of their life, still serving God full steam ahead. Contentment is not a matter of age or energy level. Neither is it a function of accumulation. It is defined by an openness to serve God and to share him with others. Such a reflection calls for our serious reflection. And so, we should reflect on these things. And let us see that God has graciously given us this time in his providence to resolve to live for him and find our hope and rest in his Messiah. And I high privilege, what a privilege, to join in on what he's doing in the world. By his power and grace, we could live 2022 and beyond for his glory and his fame because there are the only responses that make sense. Let's, as individuals, as a church, behold the glory of Christ like never before. Let faithfulness be our measure of success, our hope in God who keeps his word, and his glory be our aim. There's no more worthy resolutions than these.